I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is author and CEO and principal strategist, strategic mental health consulting, and his new book is So-Called Normal, a memoir of family, depression, and resilience. Mark Hennick stood precariously on the wrong side of the railing on a crumbling concrete overpass. The bridge spanned two realities, realities, and for Hennick, had become a symbol of escape in one form or another. A voice behind him tried to help. A crowd gathered. Siren lights flashed in his peripheral vision. Surrounded, but still alone, he let go. His TEDx talk about being saved from death by a stranger is one of the most watched in the world and has been viewed millions of times. He's served on the board of directors of the Mental Health Commission of Canada and was the president of a provincial division of the Canadian Mental Health Association, the youngest person in either role. He's been featured in Entertainment Tonight, CNN, HuffPost, the Chicago Tribune, and more. Welcome to the show, Mark. Nice to have you here. Hi, Catherine. Happy to be here. Well, your book has been described as not a misery memoir about suicide, but as a gripping, inspirational story of survival. So, and as I just read, your TED Talk has been, read, been I guess, watched by the most people in the world. Um, why, are, why do we need to hear about this? You know, if, if, why, what's the story? I mean, we've, and, and why did you write the book, I guess, is my first question. Yeah, you know, I think that's a that's probably an accurate description of uh, the book that I wrote because I think very often uh, we can fall into the trap when we talk about people's struggles, um, whether it be with suicide, depression, anxiety, addiction, uh, trauma, anything else, uh, of only really focusing on uh, the worst possible moments, right? And and that was partly the focus of my TEDx uh, talk as well a few years ago when it went so viral. But it was, I told two stories that kind of bookended my childhood experience with mental illness. Uh, the first was a little bit about my very first um, inclinations towards suicide, my very first ideas that I might need to kill myself in order to escape, that distorted idea anyway. Uh, and then the second story I told uh, took place a couple of years later after bouncing through a mental health care system that really was not meeting my needs and how I had gotten so progressively worse that I had developed a plan I had already attempted several times, and then in the second story, what ended up being my final suicide attempt when a stranger saved my life. Uh, so that's what I try to do in the book, too. I tell those stories, but with a lot more of the context, uh, and then uh, really that's just the beginning of my story in many ways. My, my story isn't about how I tried to kill myself a few times as a teenager. My story is about how I didn't do it, uh, how I went on to live a, a life that I love and that, that is filled with happiness and family and joy and, and, and fulfillment. So... That's really, I think, what what my book is about, my struggle has been about, uh, has really been all about overcoming. And Mark, you're saying that you're, this, the book particularly is about context. You put everything in context. So let's talk about some of the context. Let's go back. You say as a teenager, you thought you were already thinking of committing suicide. Where did that come from in the context of your yeah, own family? You know, I, I think that we need to have... Uh, more conversations about hard things in media in particular, like suicide, but that there's a, a helpful way and a not-so-helpful way of doing that. Um, the unhelpful way is, you know, when we see uh, stories that, that sensationalize suicide or that uh, try to explain it as a, as a reasonable way out or as a, uh, an end uh, to, to some sort of suffering. 
Um, and I think that when we do that, that tells people that suicide is a legitimate option, when really it's not. So what I try to do in, in my story is to communicate that these kinds of ideas and experiences don't come out of nowhere. I had a long history of trauma, uh, sexual and physical trauma as a young child, bullying, uh, both at home and at school, um, uncertainty and constant change of moving in and out of, of our house with my mother every time we would, we would leave home to try to get away. Um, so I think that all of that was in the background uh, for me, which eventually contributed to this idea that, that I was trapped uh, and that I needed to escape. Um, I was probably about uh, 10 years old when I first started thinking about this, and I was 12 years old when I first started expressing my, my thoughts of suicide. So when you first started expressing them, who were you expressing them to? It came out for me at school. Uh, you know, right, kids spend... Uh, the majority of their time at school, of course, just like adults spend the majority of their time at work, so it wasn't surprising for me. Uh, but it came out after uh, an argument, that, another argument that I had had with my stepfather that morning. He always picked the time right before we needed to transition from one thing to another, I think, as a, as a mechanism of control, perhaps. Um, but I arrived at school late, uh, very upset. I realize now, you know, through the writing of the book, that I had started to dissociate in order to escape from... I think the trauma and the difficulty that I was experiencing both around me and in my own mind. Uh, and I remember sitting uh, in my social studies class, and I was, we were writing a test at the time. Uh, and I had self-identified as a kind of a, as a smart kid. You know, I, I knew uh, the work that I was supposed to be writing, but I had completely blanked out. I, I couldn't think of anything else. Um, so, Almost instinctively, I wrote, I drew in the margins of the of the blank test uh, ten different ways that I could end my life, and that was the very first time that all the thoughts that had been swirling in my head, I think at that point for for a couple of years, that was the very first time that they came out of my head and into the world. What about you're talking about context? So you were in a classroom and you're writing this on a piece of paper. Was there something about the the teacher? Um, I mean, obviously that is you know, you say a call for help. I mean, that's pretty obvious, but what yeah. happened and why in this classroom and why with this teacher? Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I wasn't so much um, looking for that particular teacher uh, to help me because I don't think she knew what to do anyway. <laughs> and because, you know, later she, uh, at the end of the class, noticed the drawings, of course, on the on the test. She talked to me about what they were. Uh, and she referred me down to the guidance counselor uh, for him to, to try to help me. Uh, it turned out, actually, I don't think the guidance counselor had a whole lot of training in suicide intervention or mental health counseling either. Um, teachers and guidance counselors generally stay in their lane, and I think that that's still uh, uh, quite true, despite the fact that they're often on the front lines of, of mental health intervention. Um, but, you know, I think it was in that place because it, it was... Um, it had come to a head inside my own mind that it needed to come out. And that's the thing about strong emotions, right? They're going to come out in some way or another anyway. Uh, and I had been uh, trained, I think, uh, by my stepfather from a young age that young boys or, or men uh, in particular aren't supposed to express their emotions. You know, he told me all the time from a very young age to be a man, to suck it up, not to express any kind of vulnerability. Uh, so I think that it had all come to a head in that moment with that, that extreme stress uh, of thinking that I was, you know, not going to be able to 
uh, uh, past this test that I was that I was um, writing, and that for me, in my context, was a very important moment for me. Um, so I think that's why it came out then that it was it was ready to come out anyway, and that was just the trigger that or, or the the final push of that domino. Because that's such a common theme with young men, and it continues to be that way, even though we talk about it and we talk about, uh, you know, the, I guess, we try to impose um, these attitudes that young boys shouldn't show emotion, men shouldn't show emotion, shouldn't show vulnerabilities, but we still continue to do it. Uh, it, it seems that it, it, you know, in terms of just culturally, we're not getting any better at it, are we? It doesn't seem like we're making a whole lot of progress, but that said, however, um, my entire mission in life now uh, is raising awareness through media and through communications, and I think that we have been doing more of that. Uh, You do see more men talking openly in a variety of domains and contexts about their mental health, uh, whether it be sports stars and athletes uh, or leading business figures. Um, You see more people generally speaking about their mental health, but you also see more men uh, prominent men, especially, uh, speaking about their mental health. So I think that does make a difference. Now, I mean, I will say, though, that we're still relatively early into the, the whole mental health awareness movement. Um, it, it's probably been maybe five, ten years uh, of really speaking this openly uh, about mental health, and this never used to happen before. So, you know, I, I think that we're playing the generational game here. We're playing the long game here. Uh, and that my goal uh, is to be a good ancestor uh, for people who come later. I hope that my kids and that their kids, uh, especially the boys, uh, will be able to speak more openly about their emotions. Yeah. Well, I think suicide is still something that people people don't want to talk about. There's shame associated with it and all those negative feelings. Um, uh whether whether it has to do with male or female, I don't know if you, I mean that's been yeah at least my experience in in dealing with um, you know I'm a social worker and dealing with clients and, and or family and friends both so it's still a taboo subject so hence that's why your book is so important obviously it it very much is and you know I think we still haven't quite cracked the nut on a few areas of of mental illness and and uh, mental health problems suicide is one of them. Uh, personality disorders are another, still highly stigmatized. Any kind of psychotic illness or, or uh, distortions of reality, schizophrenia, for example. Uh, I think there are still domains within mental illness that we haven't even come close to breaking down yet. Uh, inpatient psychiatric care is, a, is another one, too. Uh, so, you know, like I say, we, we have a, a long way to go in a number of domains, but we know from, from solid research that people like me and, and, and others who share their story openly, particularly if it's a story about recovery and overcoming, that that's one of the best ways to break down stigma. It's called contact-based education. Uh, that stigma is fear. It's a fear of the unknown. It's a fear of something that you don't quite understand. So if you can actually meet somebody, ideally, or, or see somebody on a screen or read about somebody who has been there, uh, and who doesn't fit the stigmatizing stereotypes, uh, then I think that that's the best way we can correct those misunderstandings. Yeah. You talk about resilience. Uh, g- talk about res- give us some examples of yourself. I mean, you know, obviously you are resilient, and uh, how does that work for you? Resilience is a big thing, and I think that that's what gets most of us through all of the turmoil that we or that one experiences. Yeah, resilience. Yeah, you know, I, I think that. Um, the common misunderstanding of resilience uh, is that you have 
all or mostly good days uh, that, you know, the the Instagram <laughs> memes of good vibes only uh, and only positivity. And that's not at all what resilience is, uh, in my view, anyway. Um, in my view, resilience is about struggling well. Uh, it's about how, how the ball bounces, not about always staying up. Uh, that you're going to struggle. That, that kids, especially, my, my graduate education is in developmental psychology and child development. Kids are hardwired hard for struggle. Uh, they're going to suffer. That we can't uh, perpetually avoid struggling and strife and suffering. That if we do that, and in fact I've seen this in my clinical experience as well, the people who do that the most are the most avoidant. They often have uh, very troubling mental health uh, challenges themselves because they're avoiding uh, the difficult aspects of life. So for me, that's what resilience is. It's about learning to struggle well. Resilience is about failing and trying again. Uh, resilience is about falling down and getting back up every single time. Can we put that in the context of COVID-19? Because as I'm listening to you, I am I, just all these thoughts are going through my mind. I mean, we, we hear parents talking about, you know, it's been a year now since we've been uh, isolated, self-isolated or and or quarantined and kids aren't doing well and they can't cope and it's impossible for them and the long-term effects. How does that fit into your concept of resilience? Because I think that's really key here, how to help um help parents and help kids now um, with this struggle, as you say, um, struggling well. I like that expression, struggling well. Yeah, because the, as you're, I, I think it's true, the definition of resilience, it's sort of people think, well, that means you're, yeah, you're happy most of the time, you know, and that's, yeah. but yeah, which is not what it is. Yeah. No, it's not. And I think in, in, in uh, persistently difficult situations like this one has been, what causes the most suffering for people, at least I've observed or I've experienced personally, is when they cling to how they wish things were or, or, or when they reject how things actually are. You know, there's this wonderful idea in dialectical behavior therapy and uh, mindfulness practice more generally uh, of acceptance and change, that we can only change uh, when we accept the situation as it is. That doesn't mean you like it. That doesn't mean you endorse it or you ever want it to happen again, but it is what it is. If we keep trying to run from it or we keep trying to say, no, I don't want to wear the mask or no, I don't want to stay inside, or, but you know what? It is what it is. Uh, so we need to change our minds then in order to become more flexible. Um, this idea of cognitive rigidity or this, this um, in, uh, cognitive stubbornness that we get locked in in our own mind, uh, whether that's resistance or uh, friction or denial, uh, that was one of the most... Um, uh, I think, picked up on themes of my TED Talk that I did, this idea that you collapse into this very narrow view of the world. And that's a stifling place to be in in your mind. So I think with our with kids, um, kids the kids will be all right. Uh, you know, we're, we're all going to get through this together. Kids, uh, while, yes, they're hardwired for struggle, uh, they're incredibly resilient just by their nature. People are incredibly resilient just genetically. Uh, so we will get through this together. I think that though we need to uh, remember uh, that this has happened and not try once the lockdowns lift and everybody moves on to pretend that it never happened. Uh, we should change because of this experience. Change is good. We can't cling to the way that we expect things to be forever. So that means having more conversations with your kids about their mental health, checking in with them more regularly, seeing how they're doing, and having honest conversations. Look, this is a really difficult time. I know it's really hard to be in the house all the time or you need to wear these uncomfortable things on your face or whatever it is. 
have those kinds of conversations. You know, maybe this is exactly what we needed uh, to finally have people talk about how they're feeling. Yeah, I think that's well said. And sometimes at least in my experience, I see really more parents and adults talking about we're going to go back to the way it was. We're going to go back to normal. And you, first of all, you never do go back as you've been describing it. Acceptance and change is key. And that's how we go forward. And that's really the message we have to send to our children. But I do hear so much about going back to normal, to the to the way it was, and that will happen yeah. in three months or five. Not true and not healthy. Acceptance and change, I keep no, saying it. Because, yeah. Well, and, yeah. and actually, I, I think that people uh, need to realize that how it was wasn't that good either. <laughs> we have this uh, propensity to romanticize the past that never was. Uh, you know, I think that we have a real opportunity here, or at least, and I learned this through writing my book, we can choose to have an opportunity here. That the, the, the world is what it is, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of difficulty there. We are who we are. Um, but we can change and we can choose to have a different mindset about it, uh, if we want. So, no, there is no going back. You can't go home again. Anybody who, who ever moved away from home right after high school and went back 10 years later and, and, uh, expected, you know, to, to have a different relationship with the place. It's just never the same. So I think that's the same here, or that's a, a similar theme here, too, is that there is no going back to normal, uh, and maybe that's a good thing. But we should lean into that and have this growth mindset uh, that we can do something good with this time. Yeah. Now can we, just sort of changing gears a little bit, let's talk about, in terms of the book, your near-death experience and what happened that night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'd, I'd been struggling with my mental health um, by that point uh, for, for several years. Uh, I was 15 years old at the time, uh, and I had come to know my triggers as trivial. You know, these, these trivial triggers that you have so much stuff bubbling up inside you, so much pressure inside you that it doesn't take very much to set the, the chain of events in, in motion. Uh, and when that had been set in motion for me and what ended up being my, my final suicide attempt, I went to a bridge in my hometown, just a small town on the east coast of Canada, um, uh, on the, on the uh, shores of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and there was a big steel plant there, one of the, it used to be one of the biggest in, uh, in the eastern seaboard during both world wars. But by the time I was growing up, it was largely abandoned. Um, many of the buildings were falling down. The site was a, was a toxic waste dump, one of the worst in Canada, actually. And I think I went to that place because by that point, I felt like I couldn't connect with any person who understood that that's how I felt inside. So I almost felt like that that place understood me because I felt toxic and alone and abandoned inside. So I went to that place, to that bridge, and I climbed up over the, the railing and I stood on the other side. There's about an inch and a half or so of concrete on the other side of the railing. And I was fully intending uh, to die. And I remember standing there on that edge looking out. It was probably almost, it was almost midnight at the time in, in March. Uh, and feeling this sense that I finally had an agency in my life. I finally had a, a feeling of control uh, over my own life when everything else had felt like it was spinning out of control for so long. Uh, but, but my choice was that I could live or I could die. Uh, so I think that's part of what I was seeking in all of this was just some say over my life, not to be strapped down to a gurney or locked in a padded room or given a needle uh, to make me more compliant. Uh, because I'd been in and out of hospital so many times by that point that I, that I was known as uh, as a frequent flyer. Uh, you know, somebody who the more help they need, the less help they get. 
Um, so I, I think I, I, I'm not sure how long I was standing on the edge before I heard this voice over my shoulder uh, of a stranger who came up behind me and said, you don't look like you're doing so good there. And as I'm on about an inch and a half of concrete, uh, probably 30, 40 feet above, above the ground. And what I remembered from uh, that night was that this stranger came up behind me and I couldn't see him um, because the way that I was balanced on the edge of the bridge, I could see out of the corner of my eye that he was wearing a light brown jacket. Uh, but he approached the railing a good distance away uh, and he just talked to me. He didn't ask me a bunch of clinical kind of questions. I could tell because I had talked to so many of them that he wasn't a, a clinician of any kind. He didn't ask me about my medication or my therapy or uh, my hospitalizations or my diagnosis. Uh, I think he asked me about my pets, about my cat, and my hobbies and my interests. He asked me about my family and my friends and uh, the things that, that I wanted to talk about. And although I didn't really talk very much, uh, I didn't answer him very much, I was pretty quiet, um, it still felt like a sense of, of connection, like he was actually genuinely interested in, in getting to know me. Um, and then as he did that, it kind of relaxed the, this, um, these blinders, sort of, or this barrier that had been uh, collapsed around me and that kept me stuck in this idea that I needed to die. Uh, and as I started to realize what was happening around me, I saw that the police had arrived uh, and they had set up barricades, uh, wooden yellow sawhorse barricades on either side of the bridge, and crowds had gathered, even though it was you know midnight in a small town. There was a good-sized crowd on either side, uh, and I didn't know how they, how I didn't hear them arrive because you know I would think that it would have made a lot of noise, but I didn't hear any of that. And then I heard this group of young men off on the barricades uh, on the sideline. One of them shouted out for me to jump. He said, jump, you coward. And hmm. when he said that, it, it didn't matter that I had this other stranger right behind me uh, the whole time who had been talking to me and getting, you know, connecting with me. When this guy on the sidelines shouted out to me for me to jump, I mean, that was, that was one of those triggers that reminded me of why I was there in the first place. So I let go of the railing and uh, I started to fall. And then the next thing I remember was seeing that, that stranger's light brown jacket, his arm wrapped around my chest and he grabbed me and pulled me back, and when he pulled me back, I hit the railing so hard that my feet flew out from under me, and I was just dangling over the side of the bridge. Uh, and then I felt another hand grab my back, and together they pulled me over the railing. Uh, I was loaded into the ambulance and sent back to the hospital for what I didn't know at the time would be my last uh, my last uh, suicide attempt. Uh, I, was, I was discharged about a day later, and I don't know why it was significant to me at the time. I didn't figure it out until much, much, much later. But I was discharged 24 hours later, and it was the first day of spring. Uh, and I think that's when, when everything really started to change for me. And, and I think that's because I had this time to reflect on these two strangers, one on the sidelines and one who had my back, literally, and saved my life, who were watching the exact same situation unfold in front of them, but each had a very different reaction uh, to that situation that they were observing. And I think in that moment, I, I decided to be like, more like the stranger who saved my life than the one who chose to stand on the sidelines. The rest of the, as they say, is history. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you about the stranger in the brown jacket. Um, where is he? So his, uh, I didn't know where he was or who he was uh, for many years after, for more than a dozen years later. Uh, it was well after I had done the TED Talk. I'd been, I started doing some public speaking and quite a bit of media once I figured out that that was my my vocation. Uh, and then uh, after I did the TEDx talk, I started to feel this 
imposter syndrome, you know, that I didn't even know if this guy, the stranger in the light brown jacket was real. I didn't know because my thoughts were so distorted at the time. Maybe I just made him up, this whole angel devil over my shoulders thing. Um, so I decided that I needed to find out uh, if he was real. And I had developed quite a few relationships in, in national media in Canada by that point. So I went on uh, a show called Canada AM, which is, was, at the time, Canada's equivalent of, of an American Today show or, or Good Morning America. And I asked for the public's help in finding this stranger who saved my life 13 years earlier. And much to my surprise, within about an hour, uh, I started getting messages from not only all across Canada, but all over the world. The story went, went viral all over the world. And we found him. Uh, I, got, I, started, I got a message from somebody who said he was his roommate at the time, that the stranger came home and told him about what had happened. Uh, somebody else who said he was his uh, brother-in-law and that the stranger had actually seen my TED Talk for the first time in which I talk about, talked about him, uh, that he didn't realize that I was still alive after all those years. Uh, he, he didn't know if I'd just gone back and finished what I'd started, you know, the next night. Uh, and it turned out that a week before I went on national television to look for him, the stranger in the light brown jacket who saved my life had written me a letter in case someday he ever found me. Uh, so they, they sent me the letter by email, and I read it. I recorded myself <laughs> reading it. <laughs> you know, that's what normal people do at really vulnerable times in their life. They record themselves. Uh, because I figured we started this in public, so we might as well continue it in public. And that was the first time that I learned uh, his name. He introduced himself. He said, hi, Mark. My name is Mike. And, you know, I, I think in that moment, Mike having a name uh, meant that he was real. And if he was real, it meant that I was real, that my story was real. And it was incredibly validating uh, for me to know that. So, you know, we, I live in Toronto now. We flew him up and, and we met in person. We brought cameras along for that as well. Uh, I told Mike that I had no idea how to thank him. How do you thank somebody, not just for saving your life in, in a single moment, but for giving you your whole life ever since. You've been my role model ever since. And I said that the best thing that I could do was just to, to show him the life that he made possible for me. Um, so I introduced him to my wife and to my then two-year-old little boy. Uh, he's now my second son's godfather, and uh, he'll meet my one-year-old little girl soon. Uh, I showed him where I worked and my favorite restaurants. I talked about my hobbies and my pets and all the things that I never thought would have been possible for me when we met the first time uh, when I was on the edge of a bridge and, and he saved my life. What an incredible story. Not just for you, but for him and for everyone, I guess. You know, everybody connected with it, your whole family. I, You know, we have one minute left, so I want to um, make sure that people know the title of the book, So-Called Normal. And I've been talking to Mark Hennick. He, he is the author of the book. Uh, where can we get the book and where can, what websites can we go to to find out more of the work that you're doing? And also, everybody should uh, listen to your TEDx talk. Yeah, the book is So-Called Normal, A Memoir of Family Depression and Resilience. Uh, it went on sale yesterday at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, most other major retailers, Target, I believe. Um, my website is markhennick.com, and uh, there's a feature, actually, in this week's issue of People Magazine, uh, which shares the story uh, of me and Mike and has some pictures in there of us and, and gives a bit of an update on how things are great. now. Thanks so much for sharing the story with us today. It was great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 